So many people have been putting forward recommendations for collaborations and a name has come up quite a lot. Jessica Kent. I've been watching her YouTube channel grow over the years. She's got some really viral videos out. I had a baby in prison, 1.4 million views. What really happens in a prison shower? Um, almost a million views. Prison habits that I still have. And if you click down to the description box below this video, you can click over to Jessica's channel. And I urge people to subscribe because for a long time, as a prison blogger, I was noticing all the prison blogs that were rising were men's, and then Orange is the New Black came around and a, a woman's voice was finally heard. But Jessica's doing exactly the same thing on YouTube, so she needs all of our love and support. So please go down in the description box, click over, check her stuff out if you want to find out the women's perspective and subscribe. So thank you for coming on, Jessica. Yeah, thank you for having me. People are going to be wondering from the get-go, how did you end up in prison? I've watched your video, so I know a lot of your story, but I'm going to ask you things just so my audience can understand as well. Uh, for me, it started at a really young age. I was constantly in trouble. I was a rebel, but it was so much deeper than that. Uh, I grew up in a town that had no opportunity. It was very, very poor. And the only opportunity that I saw to make money was to sell drugs. For me, that started with weed. And I thought, wow, I think I was 13 or 14 when I started selling weed. And I thought I can make a little bit of money and I can just do things. I can go out to eat or I can buy some new clothes. And for me, I thought being poor was the worst thing a person could be. And ironically, the deeper I got into selling drugs and the more money I made, the worse I became and the more depressed I became. And I started to really see that it's not being poor is the worst thing you can be. Being an empty shell of a person was just the worst thing for me. Um, eventually, selling drugs led to a very serious heroin addiction. Mm. And in that, my story takes a lot, of, a lot of twists and turns, but I was originally locked up at 17 for possession of, um, pills and then criminal sales of controlled substance. And because of that, because I hadn't made that change yet, I was constantly violating parole. I was constantly going back. I was constantly failing drug tests or going on the run. And that was just a long, a long, painful journey for me. I ended up running from charges in New York. Um, a previous boyfriend that I had had robbed a store that I worked at and I knew that they were going to prosecute me even though I had nothing to do with it. So I had the chance I could either go to jail and fight from a jail cell with a public defender or I could go on the run. And I just made an executive decision in a split second to run from the cops. And that decision ultimately ended up those charges being dropped, but I got more charges because I was on the run and I couldn't make money, I couldn't have a job when I was on the run. So I ended up selling meth. And October 20th, 20th of 2011, I got charged with possession of two ounces of meth, delivery of meth, and simultaneous possession of drugs and a firearm. I had gotten into the meth scene in Arkansas and I was just miserable and I was so depressed and I was so alone that when I got arrested, it was almost like a weight had been lifted off of my shoulders. You know, it was almost like, okay, you got me. I'm going back to prison. And I didn't feel like it was a, a bad thing. I just felt like, oh, 
I can just get this over with and I can start fresh. Well, three weeks after I arrived at that jail, I had a very busy nurse <laughs> tell me, uh, you're here, Kent, because you're pregnant. So you can go back to the cell now. And I'm like, uh, I'm, so I'm sorry, you got the wrong one. I'm not pregnant. And that to me was just a turning point, but I didn't know it yet. You know, I was in complete denial that I was pregnant. I know how to go to prison. I don't know how to go to prison pregnant. And that for me was so hard to even wrap my brain around. So for months I was fighting my case and as a New Yorker going to Arkansas, I didn't understand the law. And I thought, you know, I'll do, I'll do a couple of years maybe. Well, I had prosecutors telling me, uh, little girl, you're going to go to prison for 20 years because selling meth, we don't play with drug dealers from New York. And I thought that can't be right. I'm not signing a 20 year plea. I'll go to trial. And I had a lot of little things, um, that I knew from my arrest that I could prove that what they're saying is just not true, where the car wasn't registered to me and the meth was in the driver's seat. I was in the passenger seat. They found the gun after they impounded the car when I was not on scene. So I thought I could fight this case and I thought we're going to trial. So um, about four months into my county jail sentence, I had a lawyer come up to me and say, okay, I was able to get you down to 10 years with 20 suspended, you'll serve half. And I thought, I'm pregnant. My daughter will be five when I get out. I'm not signing that. So um, this public defender was very crude to me and very just in my face, because if you don't take this plea that I worked hard to get you, this is going to come back and bite you in the face, right? And you know how they are. They, they treat you like you're just a number. You're just a case file. They want to get their, their, um, their cases closed so they can move on to the next one. He had really no interest in seeing me do well at all. Um, he had recently, or he had at that time called my co-defendants thugs, and he talked really badly about the people that was also involved in this case. And I just thought, oh, my God, oh, this is rough. So... It was six months later that he came back and he said, this is it. If you don't sign this, we are going to trial. And he said, five years, 15 suspended. And I thought, this is the answer to everything I've been asking for. I, would, I wanted so hard to cry because no way, no way am I going to be able to sign five years and do half. You know, I was just shaking and thankful and I almost just dropped to the floor because I thought I'm never going to see this little girl that I am pregnant with. I thought I was never going to get out. So I was so grateful. Um, I signed that plea and I went to prison and a few months later, my daughter was born and I can ramble about that forever. I'm sure you have so many questions, but that was really just leading up to me having a baby in prison and changing my whole life. But man, a lot of stuff happened during that time, as you can imagine. How old were you when you had your baby? I'm 30 now, so I was 23. Wow, so you really were a young person. It's like a travesty of the war on drugs that all this shit happens. And these scummy um, public defenders are like used car salespeople. They leave you rotting in the county jail for months, and then they come back six months later and say, hey, I've got the next best deal for you, um, scaring the shit out of you, offering you 20 years in the first place. And that's why people sign plea deals so quickly because they're being intimidated and they're being, they're being forced to sign these deals. Because if you go to trial, it, 
everyone in America will tell you that you will get the max sentence at a trial. So you're intimidated to the point where it's like, if I don't sign this deal, I'm never going to get out of prison. So I've seen people that are innocent take plea deals just to A, get out of county jail, and B, because they're just too scared to fight for their case. Yeah, I've seen innocent people do that as well. So you were in county jail in Arkansas, did you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What What were the conditions like in that jail, and what? How do they treat a pregnant woman in the? That's a completely whole new experience we've not heard on my channel. So to be fair, I was not like like a very nice inmate. To be fair, I always want to put that out there because I could say all day long, "Woe is me," and they treated me very badly. But I had a very poor mentality going in. Um, you feel that divide in jail. It's us versus them. You know, you're either with the blue team, which means you're an officer, or you're with the orange team, you're a convict. So I had that, that mentality already. So I just want to put that out there. Um, but the conditions in this county jail that I was in, women couldn't get feminine hygiene products. Mm. So I would see a lot of women not be able to have tampons or pads or mm. even underwear. And the really weird thing about that is men could buy underwear on commissary but women could not. Um, so that just infuriated me. And all of the things I saw in Arkansas just lit this fire under me to fight for prison reform when I got out because I had never seen that in New York. In New York, it's not even a conversation. If you need feminine hygiene products, they give them to you. In Arkansas, they're like, stop bothering us with your bullshit. <laughs> so that was the vibe. Um, I saw a lot of cells that are only meant to house two people and four people would be in the cells. So it was very crowded. Mm-hmm. Men are allowed to be out in the day room all day long. They're allowed to have work privileges. They're allowed to do a lot of different things, be trustees. Women are kept what is called 23 and one, which means you're in yourself for 23 hours a day and you're let out for one hour a day. Mm-hmm. But sometimes that wouldn't even happen. So when you have a unit, when there's about 50, 55 women, you can either shower or eat or call a family member if you have to make a phone call. You couldn't do all of those things in one day. So that was a really difficult thing to deal with. Um, You know, I would see a lot of women come in that were being just ignored. So that made me so scared. How long am I going to be in this county jail? Am I going to have a baby in a dirty jail cell by myself, which we have seen. There's mm. actually video footage of women giving birth alone in dirty jail cells. Mm. It happened, I think it happened in New Jersey. Don't quote me on that one. Um, so I was terrified. And during the course of my stay in county jail, I saw a woman have a seizure and she was left for hours hours three four hours and then finally someone came in and took her out of the unit she never returned i don't know what happened to her so women were notoriously ignored and my stress level as you can imagine was very high because what's going to happen if i go into labor what's going to happen if there's something wrong with my baby so i got no prenatal care up until three months at three months i was able to have prenatal vitamins and I was able to have one extra snack at the end of the night. Um, and they took me out to the free world to do pregnancy visits with a doctor. Now, that is literally the most embarrassing thing that you will go through, especially when people can tell that you're pregnant. So they would shackle my wrists, shackle my stomach, and shackle my legs and take me pregnant to the free world to do these doctor's appointments. I had women in the clinic take pictures of me. 
and just kind of giggle and talk amongst themselves because I'm not, I'm not walked in through the back door. Mm. I'm sitting in the waiting room with everyone else with an officer on my left and an officer on my right. And it is just, ugh, it's just so embarrassing. If I could crawled under the floor, I would have. Mm. So I, I experienced that for six months until I got to prison. And then in prison, you have an infirmary. So you no longer have to go to the free world to do these appointments. And I was able to get an ultrasound and the doctor finally told me around six months that my daughter is healthy and a normal size and the pregnancy is going well, but my blood pressure was always high. So that was the one thing that I was like, well, I'm stressed out. Of course my blood pressure is high. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure if you want to talk about what it was like to actually have my daughter while I was in prison. Yeah, please keep that. going. This is absolutely fascinating. I mean, I've heard so many stories of people going in getting stabbed, people trying to assault them sexually, um, all this stuff over and over and over. But I've never heard anything like this before in my life. So and my, my subscribers will not have heard anything like this either. Yeah, please keep going. Yeah, and I think that is really why I started my channel because I had never experienced anything like that. I've seen pregnant women in the past, but I never even thought about what they're going through. I think until it happens to you, you don't really understand. So even though I saw people pregnant here and there in jails, I never even thought about the the mental anguish, the physical pain, what they're going through before, during, and after this baby. So um, on June 12th, at about 4.30 in the morning, I woke up, and I was in a lot of pain, but it was back pain. So I'm like, well, I'm on a prison cot. I'm sure I slept wrong. And by 4.45, I'm in the chow hall, and I am, like, trying to eat grits, which are awful. I hate grits. But I'm trying to eat grits, and I dropped my spork, and it kind of just made a mess. And the woman next to me said, Jessica, you're in labor. Now, I am, like, very pregnant, and I'm like, I'm not in labor. I'm not even pregnant. It's fine, because I just didn't want to go through that. So I'm still in denial. I'm still, like, no, this pain is fine. Well, about 10 minutes later, um, against my wishes, the women told the officers, she is in labor. And I thought, I'm fine. I don't need anyone. I just want to deal with this on my own because I was just out of my mind. I was not in a good headspace. Well, the officers asked me, can can you walk? And I thought, yep, I can walk. So they made me walk in active labor from the chow hall to the infirmary. Now, when you're walking throughout the prison, there are doors that have to be opened, gates that have to be opened, and you have to get clearance in every single hallway to get to the infirmary. Now, it was about five doors, I want to say. Every time I had to stop to get a door buzzed open to go to the next hall, I was about like crying and almost screaming in pain because I have to walk myself and it felt like they were taking forever to open these doors. So I just thought, get to the infirmary. Everything's going to be fine once you get to the infirmary. Just get there. So I am like not only waddling, like I almost want to crawl in so much pain. So Mm. I finally get to the infirmary and I sit down and they're like, well, what's the matter? And I'm like, I'm in labor. I think I'm in labor. (laughs) I mean, a very pregnant woman is like crying in pain, right? Well, at this point, it was about, I want to say five, five o'clock or so. And they put me in a wheelchair and they put a puppy pad underneath me is what I call it. Now they do have those at hospitals. I'm sure they're not called puppy pads, but it would just look like a little pad in this wheelchair. And they said, 
we're going to have to wait until shift change. And when shift change comes, then we're going to call an ambulance. And I like first time mom, never had a baby. I don't know what my body is doing. I don't know how intense this pain is going to get. I don't know how fast this baby is going to come. I can't call my mom. That was an overwhelming feeling. I just want to call my mom. So I can't call her. I can't call anyone and tell them I'm in labor. And I was sitting in a wheelchair with a puppy pad underneath me for over two hours mm. waiting because they have to do count before they can authorize shift change. So I'm just sitting there and I'm shaking and I am in so much pain. The pain is getting worse and worse and worse. And I'm so scared. People are walking past me. People are ignoring me. The count was wrong because I was in medical and I was not in the unit. So they had to recount. And I'm just like, it's almost like an out of body experience at this Mm. point because how is this even happening to me? How did I get here? And I couldn't even wrap my brain around, am I really going to give birth alone in an infirmary in a wheelchair? Is no one going to take notice to what is going on? Mm. So finally, um, two officers came in and they were so nice to me. It was one officer that was from the male unit and a female officer who had just had a grandbaby. So she was all about this whole baby thing. So they were so kind and I'm so grateful for that. They put me in the ambulance and they're asking me all these questions. And now I can barely speak because I'm in so much pain, but they get me to the hospital. And by the time I got to the hospital, I was five centimeters dilated. This baby is coming. Mm. (laughs) And I just thought, I wish I could stop this just for one more year. (laughs) Obviously you can't stop it, but I just thought, I just wish I could get out. So, um, the male officer was kind enough to leave us and we had privacy and the female officer was very nice to me and she told me I was going to be okay. And she just reassured me that this is normal. This is a normal thing. You're okay. Everything's fine. So my daughter was born at 3:30 PM and she, I remember thinking, wow, she's so small, but I'm so large. That's crazy. And <laughs> I was in love instantly and blown away that I just made this little person and she's so cute. And I, I was so happy, but I was simultaneously really distraught because I know what's about to happen. I've had nine months to prepare for this. And I almost didn't even want to look at my daughter after she was born because I was afraid that I was going to love her. Um, And I I realized in that moment, I loved her this whole time, you know, and I was just like a mama bear. Um, So the doctor came in and said, we're going to be able to give you Percocet and I need you to get up and walk around so that you can feel better. And I said, "Um, I'm an addict. I can't take Percocet. I will take ibuprofen and just some coffee, some really strong coffee, because I only had 24 hours with my daughter. That doctor smiled at me and she said, I think you need another 24 hours uh, just to heal and just to make sure that you're okay. And that was just a gift from her. And I don't know if it was because I turned down narcotics. I don't know if she saw something in me that was different maybe from the other women that had come through, but she gave me 48 hours instead of 24. Wow. I stayed awake the time. I didn't even eat because I didn't want to put down my little girl. I just wanted to hold her the whole time. Um, during the course of that time, another officer came in and was very pissed off that I wasn't shackled to the bed. And she said, this inmate has to be restrained. And the doctor said, well, this inmate just had a baby and she needs to get up and walk around so that she can heal. That request was denied. 
So even though medical officer or medical professionals were saying she has to get up and move, the officers denied that. And I thought, um, how bad could that be? It's fine. Cause I'm like, just trying to enjoy this time with my baby. So y'all can bicker about whatever I'll lay down. If you want me to lay down every time I had to get up to go to the bathroom, they had to undo that restraint, the, the chains on my leg. And it was almost like, you have to go to the bathroom. So I didn't ask every time I had to go to the bathroom, you know, I just held my urine because the attitude that I got was so negative and I was not going to have your negativity infringing on my 48 hours. And, you know, I know I broke the law. I know I did something wrong. I know I sold drugs and I, that was wrong. I know that was wrong, but I'm a human being too. That just created another human being. And I was just treated except for the first officer with such like disdain, like another inmate coming through and I got to sit here at this hospital, my whole shift. I mean, they were just really crappy to me. So finally, uh, 48 hours was up and I had to go back to the prison and the guards were talking about me outside of the room as if I couldn't hear what was going on. And one of the officers said, Kent can get very violent you need to make sure that both of you get her out of this hospital very quickly. And I didn't want to hurt the officers. I wasn't going to be violent intentionally. Um, but they came in and they said, Kent, it's time to go put her down. I was just like, Oh, I just need another second. So I'm holding on to this little baby bassinet that they had. And I'm talking to my daughter and I said, I will be back for you. I will be back for you. And I'm just holding on to this. And they're like, Kent, let's go. And they were really adamant about getting me out quickly because that's their plan. Because if they get me out quickly, then I won't have to be pepper sprayed or restrained, or you're not going to have to beat me up, or I'm not going to fight with you. So they're just wanting me out of this room. And I just looked back at her and I said, no. And now I'm like shaking because I know what's about to happen. I Mm. have to go back to prison. I have to leave my daughter. I don't know where she's going. My parents are 1300 miles away. I don't have family. I don't have friends. I don't know if foster care is going to come pick her up. I don't know what's going to happen, but I have to walk out of this room and leave my first and only child. The only person I've loved my whole life alone in a hospital room. The officers grab me by the shoulders and throw me down in this wheelchair and immediately handcuff me. And I'm like, don't cry in front of them. Don't give them that. Don't let them see you cry. And I can't even help it. It just, it just happens. I am so mad and I'm so hurt. And I had um, extreme postpartum depression and PTSD after that to the point where I couldn't speak. So we arrived back at the prison and infirmary had to check me out to okay me to go back to GP, general population. So they're trying to talk to me, but that's just such a blur. I don't really remember what they said. All I know is I was kept in the infirmary for two weeks because I couldn't answer their questions. I didn't know what was going on. I was so out of my brain and I was just so hurt and heartbroken. Um, Finally, after two weeks, I just like a, a flip switch and I said, you can't be this person. She needs you to be strong. She needs you to get out of here and fight for her. And I just got up that day and I thought, get me out of here. Get me back to GP. I'll do whatever I have to do to get out of prison and be with my daughter. And that 
that strength, I don't even know where it came from. I don't know if it came from just being a mom and wanting to fight for my daughter, but my whole mentality changed. And I thought, I'm never leaving her again. If I make it out of this prison, I'm never leaving her again. Even if I have to be dead broke and work a million jobs, I will do whatever it takes. So um, I eventually got released. My daughter was over one years old and the judge stipulated me to do a lot of things. I got out to a halfway house, so I was homeless. I had prison sweatpants and prison shower shoes and prison t-shirts, that's all I owned, and a really messed up Bible that was falling apart and some jail mail. <laughs> that's all I owned in the world. I was fortunate enough to get a job that paid $7.25 an hour, and then I was fortunate enough to get another Oh, we've, we lost you there just for a few seconds. You're okay. We just lost you for five seconds. Keep going. Oh, you're fine. Now. Can you hear me? Can you, not hear, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Hold on. Okay. Can you hear me now? There we go. If my phone rings, everything messes up. Oh, no. All right. We, lo we lost you for, a few, uh, for only for about five seconds. So just, just keep going. That's fine. It's great. Okay. Um, so I was working two different jobs and the judge in my case placed my daughter four hours away from where I paroled to. So every single week, uh, I had to go see my daughter and it was four hours away. I didn't have a car. I had to hustle up rides every single weekend, work around two job schedules to go see my daughter for two hours. Now, she didn't know who I was and she called the foster mom mom because the other kids did and she had to get to know me. I was just like someone that she hung out with on Saturdays. I wasn't her mom and I was patient with that. I understood that, you know, she's one, she doesn't know and she'll get to know me and eventually I will be mommy. So she was the cutest one-year-old and I just enjoyed every second that I got to spend with her. But I was also very tired because I was working around a lot of schedules. So she wasn't getting the best piece of me and I was very, very tired. So the judge stipulated me to do NA meetings, uh, hair follicle drug test every 90 days and I had to get an apartment and a car. I had to have an income that could support my daughter. I had to find a daycare for her. I had to get a driver's license. I mean, I had to start from absolutely zero. So I kept, I kept meeting these challenges and I kept doing everything the judge said. And finally, about a year later, um, the judge said, we're going to give you overnight visits. And I thought overnight visits, like, Oh my God, I was so excited, but I was dead broke and the gas bill alone just doubled. Now I have to go pick up my daughter four hours away, drive her back four hours in a car and what one-year-old or almost two-year-old wants to do that. And then I have to spend the night with her and then I have to drive her back four hours and then drive home four hours. So as excited as I was for a little bit of extra time with my child, I was like, uh, this is a lot for an almost two-year-old. And I asked the judge, can I get a hotel room instead so that we can stay right here in this town and she doesn't have to spend four hours in the car and we can hang out? The judge said no, because she has to get used to your house. And I thought, she's going to get used to the car a lot faster than she's used to the house. I mean, that's eight hours in a weekend, right? So um, I was extremely, extremely tired, but still grateful for the opportunity. And I was working 
like myself to death. So I'm working two jobs and I'm traveling all this time to see my kid and bring her home. And I thought to myself, if you can just keep up with this, you're going to get your daughter back and it's going to get so much easier. So I just kept that fierceness. I did everything to the best of my ability for an entire year. And finally, I took my little girl to court after a weekend visit that we had. And the judge is looking over all of my stuff. And I remember this day so, so clearly. She's looking over it and she goes, wow, so you really accomplished everything that we made you do. You have remained sober. You have employment. You have a house. You have a car. And you and your daughter seem like you have a really great bond. I'm going to grant you sole legal custody. And best of luck to you. And I was like, I did that. I really just did that. You know, I got sole custody of my daughter and I couldn't believe that this was happening because the whole time I was pregnant, the whole time I was still in prison after I had my daughter, everyone said, you will not get her back. If she is in DHS custody for one year, the judge closes the case. You will not get your daughter back. You're going to relapse. You will come back to prison. You will not get your daughter. Every single person told me. I even had caseworkers tell me, Jessica, you're not making enough progress fast enough. You're going to probably lose your rights. Caseworkers told me that. And it was through that negativity that I channeled my motivation to just prove them wrong. I will get my daughter and I will prove you wrong. I will stay sober and I am going to be the best success case that you have ever seen in your life. And I just fought and I fought and I fought. And the day that I got sole legal custody of my little girl, I was like, I don't know. It was like the most amazing day of my life. I never had a judge be so kind to me. I never had a judge give me something that I actually wanted. So I brought my daughter home and I, the first night I was like, well, now what do I do? You know, I don't know how to cook. I don't know how to be a mom. I've got like Joan Cleaver in my brain. Like, I don't know how to leave it to Beaver. I don't know what to do. You know, so I was a little overwhelmed and I did spend a lot of time doubting myself as a mom because the foster mom was so amazing and we're still in contact today. She's just so kind. She's a super mom. And I thought she is like amazing. She's Joan Cleaver. <laughs> I don't know what to do. You know, I'm, I'm an ex-convict that has only ever sold drugs and guns. I don't know how to be a mom, but she taught me how to be a mom, you know, and my little girl showed me what it means to love someone and to take care of someone. And she literally saved my life. Wow. Um, it's a lot. No. Well, well, well described. Good grief. What a journey. Let me ask you this then. How does a pregnant woman fit into the hierarchy in the jail and the prison? Did, did the prisoners make exceptions for you in certain ways? How were you treated? That's a really good question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. Um, so in county jail, I was well known um, because I was selling drugs. A lot of women came in that knew me or knew my social circle. Um, so I had a very close-knit group of women around me. But I also had a group of women that did not like me. And one woman in particular had snitched on a close friend of mine, and he got 40 years in prison under the habitual sentence. So now I'm pregnant. I can't do anything. I can't fight her over this, you know. But there was that tension there for a long time. Well, she ended up kind of telling other people that I was a snitch. And a couple other people that had pending cases tried to come after me. 
So I was tripped one time, pregnant, in jail, and other women just threatened me occasionally. But that was that was kind of rare because of my social circle, because women looked out for me and wanted to make sure I was okay. I didn't really get met with any violence during that time other than being tripped or just some kind of, you know, verbal disagreements. Um, so that was good that I did know people that had my back, especially pregnant, because you need that. And then when I got to prison, I was sent to a maximum security prison, but only just to be classified. So as soon as I got classified, because I was pregnant, they sent me to a medium security. Now this lower security prison had other women that were pregnant and pregnant women were treated the same. I didn't get like an extra mat for my back or anything. I didn't really get extra food that I remember. Um, yeah, we're, we're treated the same, but I wasn't able to associate with the pregnant women because I was just, and everyone deals with trauma differently, but I was just mortified that women could just very, I don't want to say easily, it just affected me different. Women were able to go have their babies and come back and show pictures and they seemed very happy. And I thought if they did that, I can do that, but I couldn't, I didn't handle it the same way. So after my daughter was born, I just had this like chip on my shoulder almost because it looked like it was so easy for her, but it was so hard for me. And I resented them for that. I would see them always get visits with their children because their babies went to family. So their babies would come up every Saturday and they'd be talking about it. And that was a lot of mental anguish for me because I didn't see my daughter until she was six months old and I went to a courtroom. And now I'm like, a newborn and a six month old are two completely different babies. I don't know what this baby looks like. All I know is she's Asian. <laughs> so I remember going to that courtroom and thinking, ah, oh, where, which one is my baby? And then I saw her and I knew it was just so obvious. That's my baby. But I was very just, as far as the social circle, I was very resentful to those women. And I was also resentful to women that had been there multiple times because in that moment, I didn't understand how they could have their children and then lose them because I didn't get that chance. But ultimately it's because they're addicts. And it took me a long time to understand that their trauma and their pain was very similar to mine. They just handled it differently. So um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but I was kind of a loner for a long time in prison because I wanted to be left alone. I didn't want to be in the drama. I didn't want to be in the bullshit of prison life. And I just wanted to do my time, maybe write my book in prison and just be left alone. Yeah, I understand where you're coming from completely. What were your relationships like with your cellmates? Um, so I've been in a lot of different dorms. I had an open bay dorm and that is crappy because you're in a basically gymnasium with 50 bunk beds. So that was difficult. Um, they were okay. Um, I had to basically make it known not to mess with me. So that's always kind of a rough day, you know, when they want something from you and you're not going to give it up, whether that's commissary or whatever, or your place in line, women will disrespect you in the tiniest ways. If they cut you in line, that is blatant disrespect because they want to do something later. So they know they can maybe cut you in the chow hall line. They know they can get over on you in some other way. So I just had to stand my ground in a lot of situations and I didn't have a lot of friends in open bay dorms, a few, but I was very introverted. So then I got moved around a lot and I had closed cells as well. And one cellmate, um, she was a lifer. And 
as I was walking into this closed dorm, I thought, please don't be a lifer. Please don't be a lifer because they have very specific ways of living. So I rolled my little buggy up to the cell. And as soon as I walk in the cell, she's not in there. She's at her job assignment, but there's a craft trunk. And that means she's been here for a while and she's probably a lifer. And this sucks because I, I don't want to follow your rules you know, so she finally gets home from work that day and we did not hit it off. She wanted to tell me not to have people up in the cell, not to wear my shoes inside the cell, all her different rules. And I'm just like, um, this is my house too. So no. And it was very like, I was disrespectful to her, but not, not to be disrespectful, but to let you know, you're not going to push me around. And that was tense for a few weeks. And then we started to become friends and she was very wise very nice woman, but she was a woman that was not friendly to short timers because she's a lifer. What's the point of getting to know a short timer when she's here forever and she's been here for my whole lifetime? So there's no point in being friends with me or being nice to me or sharing her life story with me. Um, you know, we, we had got to talking about me and my story and a little bit of hers. And one day, it was a Saturday, I really wanted to just get out of the cell and go do whatever it was that I was doing, writing in a journal or something. And she said, Kent, you want to sit down for a second? And I knew that she was going to share something with me that she hadn't shared with other people. And I'm like, I really don't, but I'm going to because she's never asked me to sit down and talk to her before. And she said, probably the most valuable lesson that any lifer has ever given me. And she said, do you know how close you are to spending the rest of your life in a prison cell? And I thought it's a weird way to start our conversation. Like it's a Saturday, relax. But she said, you think you can just run around the streets and sell guns and sell drugs and you think you're not going to spend the rest of your life in this cell with me? You better think again. You better change your attitude because it is a second, a split second decision will send you right back here forever. You are so lucky that you got a little bit of time. You need to really think about that because she was involved in a capital murder and it was a split second thing when she was 19 and she'll spend the rest of her life in prison, mm. you know, and I could see that she was so genuine and she really just wanted to, to hit home with me. And, you know, it always stuck with me. I've been out of prison for six and a half years. So it always stayed there that she really wanted me to know how easy it is to go back to prison. And she was right because I had been before, but I never thought about it that way. You know, that just a couple of seconds in my life in a bad circle can lead me to prison forever. She sounds like a wise woman. Was there anything else she taught you that you remember? Um, you know, she was she was like an onion. You had to peel her back in small layers. Um, she just really wanted me to know that life is precious and that ship on my shoulder, either I could lose it or I could just keep going down that same path. So... I was always very grateful for that conversation. So I had a lot of co-defendants, I had a lot of female co-defendants going into the men's side in Arizona, convict code, you know, snitches, chomos, KOS. Don't talk to the guards, they'll think you're a snitch, you'll get smashed. You can't sit at tables with the other races. You must take showers or you'll get smashed for bad hygiene. What is the convict code in the female side? As far as different races, I never felt like prison was segregated as far as women. Now, it's segregated for men, but for women, um, 
a lot of black women wouldn't want to associate with a lot of white people. So there was that there, but it wasn't like you can't associate with a black woman if you're a white woman. So I had friends that were black. I had friends that were Mexican, Asian. There wasn't a racial divide unless they didn't want to associate with you. And that was a whole different thing. But um, as far as hygiene, same thing. You cannot not shower in prison. And if you shower, you better do a good job because if we smell you, it's an issue. Um, there was still that, that the prison rules, you can't talk to the guards. If you talk to the guards, you better be up there for five seconds and you better be asking for toilet paper because if you're there longer, they're going to think that you're after something, even if you get toilet paper and another woman was just told no for toilet paper, that's a problem. So you really have to be careful. And for me, if I would go up to the guards to ask for anything, I would constantly just be like, like in a rush, because I don't want to stand there for you. And there is that, that divide, like we talked about at the beginning of this interview, it is us and it is them. And if you're too close to a guard, you're a snitch and that's a problem, you know? So that was difficult. There would also be women that would dry snitch, you know, meaning they would say something when a guard was around, knowing the guard would hear it and then get wise to whatever was happening. Um, there was violence, but it's not the violence that is depicted on TV. There, I didn't really see stabbings, but I would see women, if they needed to, lay someone out. You know, so we definitely fought. There was definitely fist fights and things like that. But it wasn't like Orange is the New Black where there's riots. Um, but yeah, it's, it's close to the guys. I just think men are naturally a little more violent than women. Yeah, I had a female co-defendant, a wild woman, who laid quite a few women out. She was something else. So did you see anyone then fall foul of those rules and get dealt with? For example, in the men's prison, I saw various people get smashed, rolled up. Um, did you actually see anyone who the, the women decided to get rid of? Not because they were talking to a guard. So a lot of women are scared. They just want to get out. They don't want to go to the hole. And they're a little bit more easy to control. But you will have those women that do not care, that are going flat. And that means they're not going to be paroled out. They're going to finish their entire sentence and get out without parole. And they do that intentionally. So they're breaking the rules. So I've seen women that were like really excited to go home talking about their release date, which is something that is kind of like, maybe don't share that. You know, it depends on if you trust your social circle or not to let them know when you're getting out. But we know when you went to the parole board, we can usually sniff it out because <laughs> inmates are bored. All, all we're doing is watching. We're watching the guards. We're watching every interaction. We're, we're watching that. I look that you just gave that inmate over there. We see everything. So I've seen women get very aggressive when another woman is going home. They don't like. And I've seen a woman take a cell phone, not a cell phone, a phone and hit another woman in the face with the phone that she was talking on because she was telling her husband, I can't wait to see you. I miss you. Yeah. All that lovebird stuff. And another woman was just not having it. She was mad about it because this woman had been very outspoken about going home. It almost seemed like that woman was bragging. That's how it seemed to her. I just thought she was excited, but that woman took the phone and just smashed it against her head. And they both went to seg because the woman on the phone swung back. So if you fight back, you will go to SAG and she lost her parole date. But if you don't fight back, then everyone sees that you're weak and that's bad. So what do you do? Do you defend yourself or do you just lay there and get your ass kicked? You know, 
prison is a tough world. It, it is not camp. It is not church. We're not talking about college. It is prison. And even though women go to prison too, and women are less violent, it definitely happens. I've seen women fight over just small things like, oh, you didn't get mail. Don't say that to someone that didn't get mail, you know, because mail call is a very important time. So either, you know, small little things of disrespect or bragging about your day. I've definitely seen women get rolled out, get smashed over tiny things. What, what doesn't matter to us on the outside is everything to inmates on the inside. Yeah, I saw the fellas, the guard comes around with the mail and goes past the cell and the heartbreak on the faces when they don't get any mail. Mail's like gold. Yeah. So most of the violence then in Arizona prison system, I would say revolved around debts, drugs, drug debts, crazy behavior on drugs. The majority of the prisoners were injecting heroin, crystal meth. Hepatitis C was off the scale where I was housed. What's the situation with drugs in the Arkansas prison system where you were housed? Um, so it's not as rampant, I would say, when there is drugs on the compound, but it is very hush-hush because women can't trust other women. So you can't trust someone if you say that you have drugs on you. So you can find it, but you have to be trusted. You have to prove yourself. They have to know that you're not going to snitch when their pressure is on. They have to know that you're going to refuse a drug, a drug screen. So a lot of times guards will come in and they'll just pull random people out or the entire unit will get pulled out. If you know you're going to fail for a drug screen, you have to deny it because if you, either way, you're going to the hole. If you deny it, you're going to the hole. But if you fail, you're going to the hole. If you fail, they know the chemicals that are in that unit. So that is a very bad thing. You don't want to tell the officers what's going on. So you have to refuse. And if you don't, if you've ever been, you know, if any woman has ever seen you not refuse and just cooperate with them and let them find out what's going on, you're not trusted. So drugs are harder to find in Arkansas, but they're there. And only the elite, I guess you would say, um, have access to them. And um, were you trying to figure out, like, um, how to stay out of trouble yourself in that area? I mean, you're pregnant. Your last thing on your mind is you, you want to, you know, put toxic substances inside your body. But that temptation's always there if you've come from that lifestyle of addiction. I know that myself, speaking from my own lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So um, I was only pregnant for half of my sentence. In county jail, meth was coming in a lot. So in Arkansas, meth is the... I think Arkansas right now, I just read an article the other day that is so rampant. It leads the world in meth right now. So uh, it's, it's everywhere. It's coming in. Um, so I saw that in county jail while I was pregnant. I saw weed. A lot of things come in in jails, pills. I had the temptation, but the people that were around me protected me from that because I was pregnant. Um, after I went back to the GP unit, after having my daughter, I was so depressed that it was just driving me crazy, but I didn't say anything to anyone. I just bit the bullet and I didn't even look for it. Eventually I was kicked out of a medium security prison because I beat up a sex offender and contrary to popular belief, women are sex offenders too. And I got into a really heated fight with her. I was pepper sprayed and taken to SEG. Well, they sent me back to a maximum security and I had known that drugs came in through visitation and I was just, 
I stayed up all night because I knew they were going to get it out at some point. And I remember just being overwhelmed and just so stressed out. Now, in an open dorm, you can only go to the bathroom like one at a time. And the guards are kind of watching that, that not a lot of people get out. But I saw two women go to the bathroom one night and I'm just like, it's out, it's out. And it took every ounce of my strength to sit on my rack and not go into that bathroom. Mm -hmm. And that was so hard, but that was really the only time where I was overwhelmed by it. And I was able to just fight through that. And the only thing that kept me through that was my daughter, because if I get high and I get caught and I go to SAG, I'm going to be here longer and I'm going to lose her. I salute you for being so strong minded because I know how hard it is when you're in that cycle. Please give us the story of you smashing the sex offender then. What, how did you learn about, learn about this person? Was, was, did someone show you paperwork? How did you get access to the person? What, what happened? So she um, was in an open dorm unit with me and I was on one bed. She was right next to me. So she talked to me a lot about her case and other women mentioned that she had a bad charge. That was the verbiage that they used. I never asked because I don't care. I don't want to know what she is in here for. I just want to go home. Um, I was, it was about two months after my daughter was born and I was starting to study the law in Arkansas just to freaking understand because it basically makes no sense. New York is very black and white. I can tell you what you're going to get in New York. I, if you tell me your past record and your case and the judge, I can probably tell you exactly what you're going to get in Arkansas. No clue zero, none. The judge is just going to figure it out for you. Like it's a guessing game. So I was just studying the law and she came up to me and she said, Hey, can you look over my paperwork for me? I want to file an appeal. And I said, I'll get to it. I'll get to it because I knew, I knew she had a bad charge. I knew I didn't want to read this paperwork. So I put it off. Then the next day comes around and she asks me first thing in the morning. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll get to it. And then in the afternoon, I was at, in the day room at the tables, and I'm going over everything with someone else. And she comes over, and she puts her paperwork down. She's like, do you have time now? I'm just like, ugh, I'm, I'm so, so busy. I don't have time, you know? Like, what am I going to say? So she sits down, and I'm going over everything. And it is so graphic that I can't even say that on a YouTube video. She hurt her own child in the most disgusting way. Mm. I'm going over it. And I very calmly, but very angrily, that's not a word, bigly, not a word. Okay. But I was very angry and I slid it across the table and I said, you need to get away from me. And she was like, why? I said, you know why you need to get away from me. Now she stands up and she was bigger. I weigh up like 120 pounds. She weighs about 160 pounds. So she stands up and she's just towering over me and she is yelling and she is mad and I'm like, just sit down. Just don't stand up. Don't, don't instigate her. Don't make this worse. So I'm just sitting at the table and she's just shooting her mouth off, just yelling and she's acting crazy. And I'm like, if you just sit here and you just are stone faced, she'll eventually go the fuck away. Just stay calm. So I did. And that's exactly what happened. She walked away and I thought, oh, She's not going to let this go. I already know. And a lot of times sex offenders are so mentally ill. They don't see the issue with what they've done. I've seen that a lot in prison. So she started to tell women she's been to prison before. She's a fucking drug dealer. She's this, she's that. And it was just snowballing. So the guards called for rec and I thought, just go to rec, get out of the unit. Maybe she'll stay here. No, 
She follows me out to rec and she's in her social group and she's talking crap about me very loudly. And I'm telling my people like, this is going down today because she's not going to let it go. And you know, it's going down. And my friends are like, please don't do this. Just relax. It's okay. You don't have to fight her. You don't have to fight her because it was very well known in this prison that if you get any kind of write up, because this is a very cushy medium security prison, you will get sent back to max. And I thought it's out of my control. You know, it's going down. She has made it. She's made up her mind. So she's following me around outside and then we go inside. She's following me around. Finally, she goes to the bathroom and she is this close to my face and she pushes me and that's all it took. She pushed me and I hit her as fast as I could. She's bigger than me. So I knew either you throw the first punch or she's going to lay you out. So I hit her as hard as I could in the nose and it immediately just shocked her. I don't think she thought I was going to swing. So she was just completely shocked and she fell and I'm hitting her as fast as I can. She got a couple shots up. She's like punching up because she's on the ground. She got a couple shots in here and on the side of my face, but nothing that really hurt. And I'm hitting her as hard as I can, as fast as I can, because I need to get out of this bathroom. You need to know not to fuck with me and I need to get out of this bathroom. So I go, I'm thinking that I have time and I kind of went to get up, but I felt someone pull at my arm. I thought it was another inmate because a New Yorker would have said 5-0 and let me know that the cops were here. They would have done something. No one called that the cops were here. No one warned me. I didn't hear the jingling of their keys because this happened so fast. I didn't hear radios. I didn't hear anything. The officer grabbed my arm and I went like this, like that. And I hit the officer in the chest. And I thought it was almost like a simultaneous, like I hit her. And I looked and I was like, I was just so like, I mean to, you know, so she just stands back and sprays pepper spray into a condensed area, the bathroom. It hits me directly in the eyes. It hits her, the girl that's on the ground. And immediately I can feel my eyes burning and I can feel that they're getting swollen almost instantly. I snot and they, they grab me up real quick, handcuff me. And now I can't even see out of my eyes. I don't even know what's going on. It's burning. I'm crying. There's snot everywhere. It's not a good scene. It's really gross, you know, and they take me to SAG. They don't even, what's the word for it? Like disinfect me or put me in a shower to get rid of the stuff. So I'm just in a, a segregation unit segregation cell with the water from the, the sink and I'm trying to splash it over myself and I'm in so much pain. It hurt for three days. Three days my eyes were hurt and my, my vision was blurry for probably hours and they just so happened because it's a small prison to put me in a cell next to her. So our vet connected <laughs> and the yelling didn't stop. You know, she's yelling at me and she's crying and she's acting crazy. And I'm like, I can't even get any peace in SEG because she's right here connected to my, connected to my cell. So I had to sit there for about 30 days. Then they transferred me to the maximum security. And then I got another 60 days onto my segregation time. So I did 90 days in SEG because of that. Wow. What a story. And we're almost at an hour right now. So I'm going to thank you for being such a strong person, brilliant storyteller. I think, you know, you're going to see your channel continue to rise. And I know you're doing activism and you've got a future ahead of you there. Uh, for the people watching this, um, that hour just went like that to me. And I've got so many more questions. If you've got questions for Jessica, please put them in the comments below this. 
If you'd like to see her again on the channel, please put them in the, in the comments, let us know. And also click down in the description box, there will be Jessica's YouTube channel link and a link to all of her socials. Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion to the people watching this, Jessica? Thank you for watching for an entire hour. It's a long time. Um, but if you want to see me back on the channel, I'm more than willing to come back on to share stories with you guys. But just thank you so much for having me and for listening to my crazy life story. Yep, I'd like to thank all the subscribers. If you've not subscribed yet, subscription logo, bottom right-hand corner. And thank you to all the people who've donated on PayPal, Patreon, just giving subscribe star. All those links are in the description box as well. So cheers from London then. You take her out there over in America.